Okay, this morning, uh, good morning, and uh, uh, hopefully this morning we can uh, begin to establish a, uh, a bit of uh, continuity how we're going to run the class. Uh, last, the first two weeks had a stall in between and then the surprise that we weren't in here uh, last week. So anyway, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 4 through 14 of the first chapter of the book of Hebrews this morning. And I think it's kind of important as we, as we come to this is there's some understanding that you need to have when we come to this book about angels and about the perception of angels. Um, for us today, I think we have a much better perception, especially if you've been a believer any amount of time. I'm sure you've heard a lot of teaching uh, that involved angels and who they are and what they do and, and their makeup and that kind of thing. Uh, but that's very different from how first century Jews understood angels. Uh, today we understand angels that they're they're created beings, they're spirit beings. They do have the spirit beings. They do have a body. Um, the the basic word angel, both in Hebrew and in in Greek, means means messenger. Uh, that's their primary function. Uh, they're servants of God and messengers of God. Uh, they, they can appear as men, as Hebrews 3, uh, 13.2 is going to tell us later on, where it warns us, be careful how you entertain strangers, because sometimes they're angels. And uh, 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 they, they also can seem to appear in other, other forms of blazing light, uh, flaming chariots, um, all kinds of things. Uh, we know they're intelligent. We know they have emotions. We know they're powerful. We know they're not subject to death. We know they don't marry or reproduce. Uh, they appear. It appears in Scripture that they were all created at one time, and their number is never added to or deleted from, uh, other than the fallen angels, but we're talking about holy angels. Uh, they're organized into ranks. Uh, while there are some variations where some people try to add other ranks, uh, we're just going to say that they're, they're in basically two ranks plus cherubim and seraphim, plus there's this other group that are called living creatures. And we're just, we're just going to leave it at that. But for the Jews of the first century, you have a little different understanding because in the Talmud and in the, uh, and in the uh, rabbinical writings, the rabbis had a tendency to embellish things. Uh, they expanded the stories, and you understand that rabbinical writing and the Talmud are not scripture; they're they're commentaries, more or less, and uh, their opinion in a lot of cases and their their interpretations. Uh, but uh, one thing that is true about angels to the Jews, they were very important to the Old Testament covenant. They were they were an important feature in that covenant. Uh, they uh, they brought God's word to men. That's the way they understood it. They were instrumental in the working out of God's will. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Some, but the, some of they took it to the point, even to this point, that they believed angels to be uh, an advisory council to God. Uh, some of the Talmudic writing uh, suggests those kinds of ideas. So you understand there's an elevated position that they're giving to angels. And then they, they also, there, there's some writings where they, they think that, you know, every planet and star and, and moon and whatever is controlled by an angel. They control the move, movements of the universe. They kind of wrote those kind of things into it. Uh, they basically saw angels as the deliverers and the mediators of the word of God. 
um, Acts 7, uh, 51 through 53, where Stephen, where Stephen is uh, uh, right, giving his address right before they, they martyr him, uh, he, he makes a point of this, that that's the way the Jews understood them as the mediators of the Old Covenant or the, the ones that gave the word. Galatians 3, uh, 19, there Paul says the same kind of thing. And because of this, there are even some within some of the Jewish, Jewish sects, it seems to be true of the Qumran sect, at least, uh, that, uh, that they actually worshipped angels. And Paul addresses this uh, to the Colossians in 2.18, where he talks about not worshipping angels. Uh, they're not to be worshipped. And, and you understand that even within Christianity in the second century, when the Gnostic heresy became full-blown, basically they had reduced Jesus to an angel, and they worshipped angels. Uh, because they saw, what they saw was, is that uh, uh, if you understand Gnosticism at all, that there was this delineation between the spiritual and the physical, and the physical was bad and the spiritual was good, and so therefore God, who is spirit, is total good, and man, who is physical, is bad, and they can't meet, so they need a bunch of intermediaries in between. And the angels made up those uh, intermediaries. Some of those were good angels, some were bad angels, uh, but Jesus was in that rank, and he was at the higher end. And they worshipped angels. So these are the kinds of things that are going on here. So when we come to this text, because I kind of thought to myself, I've, I've always, you read through one through four, uh, like we did last week. And, and you look and you see that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better. He's, he has a better, per, he's better in his person. He's better in his work and he's better in his name. And then the next thing it says, he's so much superior to or better than angels. And you go, well, duh. <laughs> You know, but to the Jews, it's not a well, duh, it's a shock. And so that's why the author of the book of Hebrews is going to go into this developed explanation of the superiority of Jesus Christ to angels. So that's where we're going to be going this morning. And we're going to look at he has a better name. We've already really talked about that one. He's the one who is worshipped. He is divine. He's eternal. And his and his his position. Those are the things we're going to be looking at this morning. Before we do, and I kind of want to make this a part of our, our, uh, our uh, weekly meetings, is uh, I'd like to take just a moment and ask for, is there anybody that have any, any prayer requests that they want to, uh, the group to, to share with the group and we can pray for and then we'll move on. Yeah. Pray for our daughter, Rebecca. She's having a very difficult morning, was hoping to come down from Ridgecrest for church today, and she won't be able to, and she just gets real lonely. Yeah. Being up there, it's hard. Having a hard time. I uh, just keep praying for Sam, because, you know, he had COVID. He has COVID. And um, so, it's a slow comeback. So he's recovering at home. He didn't have yes. to the hospital. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes, sir. We have a grandbaby that's probably coming right now. Oh, well, good. There's something exciting. Congratulations. Well, not yet. We just got the text that they're on the way to the hospital. And this is, oh, okay, okay. This is number two for them. Okay. Okay. And we have some people who live up by Posey who the fire is threatening their home. So oh, okay. They, they evacuated Wednesday, and uh, Lori Bird said it's within probably half a mile of their home. Oh. Really? Okay. 
Well, let's just take a let's just take a moment and uh, and uh, commit this morning to our to our Lord, Father God. As we come this morning, we we thank you. We thank you that you, in your graciousness, have revealed yourself to us through your Word, and in these last days through your Son, who by whom whom we have been redeemed and saved and brought into your eternal family. And Father, we thank you for this group that is here today. We thank you as we look into the, the book of Hebrews that, that tells us more of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we just lift these prayer requests to you for, for Rebecca, for Sam, uh, for, for Ed and, and his uh, uh, impending uh, uh, new grandchild. Uh, those are exciting times, and we lift up this family uh, that's up in uh, po- uh, up uh, in the fire zone that they might uh, that you might spare them uh, and protect them and keep them safe and we would give you the praise for all of this in Jesus name Amen. Okay, uh, so verse four we kind of looked at verses four and five last week, but I just want to kind of bring those back in this morning. Uh, verse four says. Ha- uh, having become as much superior to angels as the, as the name he has has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of them, uh, to, for to which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son; today I have begotten you"? Or again, "I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." So here, here he is saying, he's saying Jesus has, and incidentally, the English translations always put more excellent or more superior. The Hebrew, the Greek says. Better. <laughs> That's the literal translation of the word. Uh, so at any rate, uh, he, he basically says, he says, he has a better, he has, he has, he has a better name than the angels. That's, that's the focus here. He has a better name. He's already told us that he is the son. He told us that back in verse two. And so he's, he's coming down to here and saying he has a better name than angels. He, he has a more prominent name than angels. Now you understand that today, Names are kind of a fad or they're a tradition. Like all of our children, their middle name is after somebody in the family, you know. And uh, 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 some, I, I looked it up. The two most popular names, one for boys and one for girls, today are Lim and Olivia. Lim? Lim, L-I-M, A-M. Oh, Liam. Liam. Yeah. Yeah, Liam. Okay. Anyway, I'm not Irish, I'm Scottish. I don't say it right. So anyway. Olivia. But anyway, and, and they basically said that's, that's short for William. I don't know. But anyway, and, 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 it, and it means protector, Liam, and Olivia means, means uh, uh, olive tree. So if you want to name your daughter after an olive tree, okay, you know. But anyway, anyway, uh, but in this day, in, uh, not this day, but in the day of Hebrews, mm-hmm. names had a much more significant uh, background to them. Uh, names were that which expressed who an individual was, kind of like these meanings. You know, if you were named Liam, you were been expected to be a warrior. You know, that's kind of the idea. Uh, that's what that name implies, strong warrior or protector. And, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know how that applies to Olivia, but nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, it summed up the whole person. So it was a very significant thing. And of course, the name Jesus, Yahshua, means Savior. That's ultimately what it means. That's ultimately what it means. And so he's, 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 he's here uh, talking about the name. Um, 
as how it relates to the character of the person that we're talking about. And what he is saying here is, is the sum total of who, G, of who God is is found in the Son. That's the idea here. He is the, because we're already, the rest of the t- t- um, scriptures tell us that he's the expressed image of, 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 uh, of, of God the Father. So here he is ex- he's expressing that. He's saying he is the Son, the one and only, incidentally. Now, yes, I am aware uh, that in Job 1.6 and in 2.1, uh, angels are called sons of God with a small s. However, it's always, when, and I also know that Israel was called sons of God. However, this is the only place where a specific individual is called the son of God. The rest of those speak of a collective group who are part of God's redeemed or part of God's family, or in this case, part of God's celestial crew, I guess you would say. Uh, but but uh, that's here. It, it denotes that he is he is uh, he is above all of that. He is the son. And he's going to express that as we go on more uh, farther. And he goes on and he says that it's more excellent. And that's basically a word that is comparative. It's better than their name. In other words, the collective group of angels called sons of God is not anywhere near comparison to Jesus being called the son of God. That's that's the idea that he's expressing here. It's more excellent. And he says he inherited that name. And the idea here is that he took possession of it without regard of means. It's is, is the idea behind this word inherited and how it's used. He took possession of that name. He owns that name. It is his name and no other. Revelation 5, uh, 6, and 7 express uh, where he takes ownership, where he opens the scroll. Uh, that's, that's, that's the whole point there. He is taking possession of creation at that point. He inherited it. That's the idea. He is the one that had the capacity to inherit. That's what verse 2 has already told us. He's the one that had that capacity. And then he goes on in verse 5. In verse 5, uh, he, uh, he uh, quotes two Old Testament passages. Now, understand something. Here's the point. If you're going to prove to a Jew in the first century that Jesus is the Christ, and that he is the superior one, that he is the creator, he's all of these things that the author of Hebrews is calling him, you're going to have to do it from the Old Testament. You're going to have to show that from the Old Testament, because they already think angels are the guys who mediate and brought the Old Testament. That's their mindset. So if you're the author here, you've got to go to the Old Testament, so he does. In the first place he goes is he, go, is he goes to Psalms 2.7. And he quotes Psalms 2.7. Uh, he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And of course, it's a rhetorical question, because the answer is, none. That's, that's the answer, none. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a long-held traditional, even with the rabbis, this is a messianic psalm. It's always been seen that way. Now, the rabbis didn't necessarily apply it to Jesus, but the New Testament here is. Uh, that's, that's what the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is saying. This applies to Jesus. This is who is being looked at in Psalms 2. This is the one that is being spoken of. And he's, and he's, and he's saying that 
He never told the angels this, but in Psalms 2, he called Jesus the Son. He called the Messiah the Son. They saw it as Messianic, and Jesus is the Messiah. So he quotes the greatness of the Son. That's the idea here. And the second verse that he quotes is is 2 Samuel 7, uh, 7, 14, uh, in which he says, And I will be a father to him, and he he shall be to me a son. He quotes that passage. Now, the passage in 2 Samuel is primarily directed to David referring to Solomon. However, I, I, I've been here long enough to, I've heard Pastor Steve say this a couple of times, and I suspect most of you have too. In Old Testament prophetic verses, there's a near fulfillment that's usually somewhere right around the time that's being given, and there's a long fulfillment. Well, this is the long fulfillment. Uh, this is being here taken from that context and applied to Jesus. And understand, when the New Testament takes an Old Testament reference and applies it in the New Testament, it becomes, that's what it is. It's the type. This is what he's saying. Here was a type of what he's saying. Uh, David said to Solomon, I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. And what he is saying is, that is in effect God saying it to Jesus. That's what the, the author of Hebrews is saying. So for the Old Testament Jews, they're taking that and they're understanding that's what we're looking at here. This is messianic, and that's, that's the view. So the, the first section that we have here, you can also see, uh, uh, I think in your notes, I mistyped. It says John 7-2. If you look up John 7-2, you're going to go, what's he talking about? It's John 1-2. Uh, but at any rate, uh, uh, Luke, uh, Luke, uh, Luke 32-33, Luke 1, 32 and 33, where it reads, He will be... Great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be of no end. And it's the angel talking to Mary about the birth of her, uh, the soon birth of her son Jesus. That's so that that passage is being now applied to Jesus. That's the point here that that he's making. This is who we're talking about. He has a name that is better because he is the son. And no angel ever had that name. That's the point that he's making here in this first section. And then we move on to, uh, to verse 6. And it talks about being worshipped. And then he goes again and he says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, <clears throat> Let all God's angels worship him. Now here's the, here's the whole point. Uh, this is this is coming from Psalms ninety seven verse seven, and it also is found in Deuteronomy thirty two forty three. Uh, in the Psalms text, it reads it reads in the Hebrew it reads worship him all you gods. However, in the LXX, and remember that the Septuagint is what is being used uh, by the author of Hebrews. It says worship him all you all you angels all his angels. Excuse me. Uh, so that's that's the idea here. Once again, okay, the use of the Septuagint. Understand this, that when an inspired writer uses literature of whatever nature and puts it into the Scripture, it becomes Scripture. doesn't mean the whole book becomes Scripture. It means that that section becomes Scripture. So where the LXX is being used here and applied... It means this is the Word of God. It's just like uh, 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 in uh, Jude, where uh, the author of Jude refers to some mythology, and he applies it 
uh, as an example. It becomes the word of God at that point. doesn't mean the mythology is true. just means it's, it's accurate to the word of God. So that's what's being happening here. So what he's saying is the LXX is correct here. It is the angels worship him. The Deuteronomy verse in the, in the LXX says, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, and let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. Incidentally, that same passage is quoted by, again, in 1030. It's quoted by Paul in 1019 and 129 and in 1510. So that, that passage is obviously being applied out of the Song of Moses uh, as part of the worship of the New Testament church to understand who Jesus is. So he's, he's talking about his, his worship, and he, and he goes on and he says, he says this. He says, he brings his firstborn. Now, you understand that a lot of cults come here, and they see these things, and they try to say from this that Jesus is a created being, uh, that he was created. This is what the uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventists proclaim. They, they see Jesus as Michael the Archangel. Uh, and uh, the Mormons, are, well, actually, they see him as Michael the Archangel. The Mormons see him as a created, born spirit baby. I don't know that. It's a con- convoluted uh, philosophy. But at any rate, at any rate th- that's what they see. And they try to use passages like this. Well, see, he's the firstborn. Well, this word, prototokos, is a word that doesn't speak of time. It speaks of rank. That's what it speaks of. That's what the word means. The word has the idea, he is first born in the sense that he holds the highest place of honor. He is the heir, is the idea here. If it was in a human birth order, it wouldn't matter which son it was. For example, Jacob inherited the promise. Right? Was he firstborn? No, but he's the Prokotokos. In that sense, he's the heir. That's what this is saying. This is not talking about time at all. It's talking about rank. And what it is saying is, when he brought in the highest ranking one, Jesus, that's what he's saying. Because he has the idea of being able to take the airship uh, to be the heir, to be the one who who opens the scroll. That's what Revelation 5 is talking about. We looked through everywhere, and no one was able to open the scroll, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain. And that's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's pointing to here. It, it speaks to him as his heirship. And then he goes on, and he, said, he, he uses this word... Uh, when he brought him into the world, and basically, this again is not universe. That's not the word that's being used here. The Greek word that's being used here is the inhabited planet. So it means when he came here to this planet, he became the, he was the, he's the heir. He's seen as the heir. Uh, the subject is God who, <clears throat> who brings his son into the world. That's the subject matter here. That's what he's talking about. And you understand that this is important for these Jews to understand. He's no mere angel. He's he's of the highest rank. And he came into the world. The inhabited place where human beings live. 
And then he uses the word again, and, and if any of you have explored commentaries, you know there's a bunch of debate over this word as to whether it refers to the fact that he came the first time or the second time. It's not really the issue of this particular text, but it, but it, uh, it has support for being uh, his second coming. Uh, it, it also fits into his first coming because Jesus was worshipped at both times by angels. Luke uh, I know where it's in here somewhere. Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. The angels rejoiced at his birth. We have that. that. And then, of course, when we go to Revelation 11 through 14, we have nothing but angel worship of Jesus right before his second coming. So whichever one it is, the point is angels worship him. They worshiped him through eternity because he is God. That's the point. That's the whole point here. And then you notice also it, it, says, it says all the angels. It means they all worshipped him. It wasn't just four or five. It was the whole myriads of myriads. Uh, the point is that clearly he outranks any angel. And that's the point the author is trying to make. What he's trying to convince these Jews of is angels aren't who we worship. It's Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the entire point here. He's, because he is the one who is worshipped, obviously he is the one who is better. He is superior to angels because he's the one that's worshipped. Then in verses 7 through 9, I'm getting too many papers here. Um, he's better because he is divine. Now as we come to this text... We've got three verses here, and in the first part of the verse, there's a description of angels in verse 7. In verse 8, in the first part, it, it declares Jesus as divine, and in verses uh, 8, the second half of 8 through 9, he's going to talk about the character of this divine person to, to demonstrate uh, his character and his kingdom and, and uh, show that it's divine. And here he's going to go to Psalms 104, verse 4. And it, it talks about, uh, uh, he, 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 well, let's get to the text first. Of the angels, he says, in contrast, once again, to verse 6, where he says, let, the, let, the, let, uh, let, uh, let all God's angels worship him. He says, but of the angels, he says, he makes the angels wings and his minister, uh, makes his angels wings and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's, he's saying here, he's saying here in the very beginning, in contrast to Jesus, in contrast uh, to the one whom the angels worshipped, or and worship, not worshipped, it's not past tense, worship. Currently, uh, of these angels, he said, he makes his angels wind and ministers a flame of fire. Well, this is kind of an interesting phrase because, first of all, it says he made them, which literally means he created them to be. That's literally what he's saying here. So now he's contrasting Jesus, who is not created, but is a son to angels who are created. Incidentally, he's already established Jesus as the creator, right? 
we're going to get to that in a little bit too. But anyway, anyway, he made them. He created them is the point he's making here. They were created. <clears throat> Incidentally, uh, these passages are this, this same psalm, verse 12 of this same psalm is used in Matthew 32, Mark 4, 32, and Luke 13, uh, uh, 13 19. Uh, and he basically uh, basically is going to use the psalm to demonstrate the subservient standing of angels compared to the sun. That's what he's doing here. Uh, but he says, of the angels, he made them he made them uh, wind and fire. Those are the basically the two elements that he's talking about that he made them. And basically, what he's saying here is something of the power of angels, because. Uh, uh, any of you remember 1977 when Bakersfield blew away? You know, the wind is powerful. And that's what he's saying about angels. They're a wind. They're a force. They're powerful. And he says, secondly, they're like lightning. They're a flash. And they're seen this way. Uh, this is the way angels are seen. There's, they're under, you, you ever notice in Scripture, whenever an angel appears, even to a person whom, like to Mary or to Zacharias or any of these other people that they appear to, the first thing they say to them, if they're somebody God wants them to talk to, is mm-hmm. don't be afraid. Why? Because they're fearsome. And that's the point here. Uh, they're, an awesome, they're an awesome being. Uh, they're not. To, they're not. To, they're not to, to be to me to to be messed with. Incidentally, did you ever notice in Revelation that it only takes one strong angel to incarcerate Satan? He does a felony warrant stop on him and takes him down by himself. That's what happens. That's what happens. This is what it's talking about. It's saying. He makes his angels a wind, a powerful blowing wind, and he makes them like a lightning strike. But, the contrast, but of the sun, he says, your throne, that's the first thing he says, your throne, your throne is forever and ever. Here's a big difference between angels and Christ. Angels are a powerful being. God created them to be that way. But Jesus sits on a throne that is eternal. That's what he's saying here. It implies he existed before the angels and he continues to exist. That's that's the idea here. Your throne is forever. The difference between angels is, is, uh, is explained here. Angels are a created being and they're servants. And Christ is the eternal God. Here the Father acknowledges God as the Son. Look what it says. It says, your throne, O God. It's God speaking when he says this. And he's speaking to the Son. He says, your, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Which basically means eternal. I uh, and then he's going to go on, and he's going to. This is the father acknowledging the son as divine, and he's going to go on in the rest of the verse to talk about how he how that applies to his kingdom, uh, which uh, uh, 
follows along uh, Psalms 45 verses 6 through 7 uh, to Jesus. Uh, also, look at look at look with me for a minute, if you will, at Titus uh, chapter two. If I could read my writing, it would help. Uh, verse thirteen. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's definition. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what this text is talking about here. That's who he is. Incidentally, I, I have given there, if you look in your notes, you may want to look at these. It's kind of a, it's, you, it takes some work to do it. But, but I gave you a list of uh, passages of, of Old Testament, of a New Testament passage that refers to an Old Testament passage. And in that passage, the New Testament author is, a tri, is, is ascribing to Jesus the name Yahweh. That's what those four passages are about. Uh, basically, if you, I think most of you probably know this, but when you go to the Old Testament, and whenever you see the word LORD in all caps, it isn't LORD. It's not Adonai. It's Yahweh. And in all four of those passages that the New Testament author ascribes to, and in this case, well, actually one, it's John the Baptist, and then it's uh, Peter, uh, it's Peter, Paul, and uh, who's the other guy? Oh, it's Peter and Paul and John the Baptist, who are all the passages come from. And, and uh, they all ascribe to Jesus the name Yahweh from those Old Testament passages. He is God. That's the point here. He is the divine person. He is God the Son. He is Yahweh the Son. He is the second person of the triune God. That's the, that's the point this passage is making. That's the point he's driving home, home to these Jews. This is who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets spoke of. He's the one that the angels serve. And then he goes on. And he talks a little bit more about him. He says, about the Son, your throne is forever. And then he comes back, to, back and he notes about his throne. And he says, he, he talks about it. This is a sense of a kingdom here. He says, your throne, your scepter, your kingdom. Those three words are the words he used. Uh, and he, and he, he talks about them. He says, first of all, that he has a scepter of righteousness. He rules his kingdom in righteousness. That's the, the hallmark of his kingdom is righteousness. And this eternal king rules that way. And he, he says that, uh, that his, his motives and his actions are all expressed in righteousness in his, in his ministry. Um, and it says, and he hated wickedness. Another way to say wickedness, and the, probably the literal translation of it is lawlessness. We kind of define it as sin. But it's, it's lawlessness. It's the idea here. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 6, 33, uh, called us to seek his righteousness. The kingdom of his righteousness. And then he, he, he holds a scepter. And in the ancient world, and I suppose if you watch any of the Netflix deals about England and the queen and all that kind of stuff and the kings, they hold a scepter. The scepter is the mark of authority. Incidentally, in the ancient world, the scepter was more than the mark of authority. It was, it was used to point one way and tell you to come forward. Point the other way, and you went and saw the executioner. 
It was, it was the judgment mark as well. It marked their authority and it marked judgment. And what this is saying is he judges rightly and he judges wickedness. He is the one who judges. That's, that's what it's talking about. He, he maintains a kingdom that is absolutely righteous and there's no sin found in it. It's, it talks about his authority. He blesses and he condemns. And it says that God has appointed him with the oil of gladness. Uh, this is the picture of consecration. Uh, this is the picture of coronation. This is the picture of, of, uh, of placing one in that position of king. That's, that's, that's the idea. That's the way this, this word is used. I've give some examples there in Exodus and 1 Samuel and 1 Kings where it's, where it's shown to be where a king is marked, a priest is marked, those kind of things. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a right of, of uh, it's kind of like today when we ordain somebody and put our hands on them and ordain them or put them on their head, their shoulders, whatever, however you do it. It depends on how many guys got involved in the ordination and how big the guy is. But, uh, 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 but, uh, uh, it's, it's that whole idea that you're consecrating somebody to a sacred work. And that's the picture here. That's what the oil of gladness part of it means. And he says, he says he does it above his companions or associates. Likely, likely, he's talking about the angels here, not believers. In other words, he was consecrated as king before the angels and then he was sent. The picture in Revelation, chapter 5 and verses, chapter 6. Uh, in Psalms 2, 2, he is called the anointed. And to the Old Testament believers, and to the rabbis for that matter, that meant Messiah. That meant he was the Christ. That's the picture of Psalms 2, 2. So Jesus is better than the angels because he is the divine God. He is God, the second person of the, of the triune God. He is God, the Son. And He is worshipped. And He is the one who sits on the throne and who holds the scepter. He is the one who judges. These are the pictures that are being, being, uh, being demonstrated here in this, in this particular section. Uh, for the, for the Hebrew, Hebrew Christians who are new in the faith, these are important things to understand to get some of that old stuff out of their mind. It's just like for most of us, we all had a background somewhere. Some were probably raised in solid Christian homes and some were probably raised in solid pagan homes. But nevertheless, as we grew in our faith, those old thinking patterns had to be removed. They had to be cleaned out. Uh, You know, my whole background was I was raised... uh, uh, I was raised in the United Methodist Church. If any of you know anything about the United Methodist Church, they talked about John Wesley a lot. He would have never gone to church there. I guarantee you. you know, never once do I remember hearing the gospel preached. In fact, the last sermon I ever heard preached there, this was, my parents said, that's it, we're done. But uh, uh, the last sermon I ever heard preached there, I lived in Los Angeles, so you'll understand this part of it, is, is that... Uh, that uh, he was uh, preaching against, I think I was 13, maybe 12 or 13 when I heard this sermon, and it stuck in my head. He was preaching against Sunday harness racing at Hollywood Park because 
It would keep people from going to church. And the immediate thing that jumped into my preteen, early teen head was, why would people go to church, stop going to church, and go to harness racing? It made no sense. You know, that was the gospel of that church. You know, that kind of, and my view of church was, that guy in the robe up front did everything, and the rest of us sat here and listened to him. That was my view. You know, all of that had to be cleaned out of my head once, once I really came to Christ and started serving him. That stuff had to be cleaned out of my head. Well, so for these Jewish, Jewish believers, all that rabbinical teaching has to be washed from their mentality. And it has to be renewed by the Spirit of God with the truth of the Word of God. And they need to understand that the Messiah is Yahweh the Son. That's what they need to understand. He's better than the angels because he is God. He is divine. He is the eternal one. He is the one that sits on the throne. That's, that's, what, that's what he's wanting us, that's what he's wanting them to understand here. And then the next thing he says, that he's, he's better because he's eternal. Here he's going to quote Psalms 102, verses 25 through 27, uh, and he's basically saying that Jesus is better because he is eternal. So we're going to look here at verses 10 and 12, and it says this, And, in addition to, did he not only say this about the Son, he says this about him, And, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginnings, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish but you will remain, and they will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will, uh, will have no end. Basically, he's calling him eternal here when he comes to this. John 1.1, 1, 1, Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and following. In the beginning, in Genesis, in the beginning was God. What's the Bible about? It's about God. It's the self-revelation of God. And in these last days, he's revealed in the Son. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's, 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 the, that's the emphasis here. Uh, Jesus had to exist. The point is, Jesus had to exist before the creation in order to create it. I mean, obviously, the creation didn't come. That's kind of putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? If you think he came after creation or that he's created. No, he's the one that created. That's what, that's what John is telling us. That Genesis 1 talks about the spirit, the spirit moving or hovering over the Tahome, the, the world that was, had no form or shape, no form or substance, excuse me. And, and, and here he is saying, it is he who did it. He's, he's the one who existed before creation in order to be the creator. The, the, the author points to the world, uh, the world coming to an end. He goes all the way to the other end of things. He not only created it, he's going to be there when it ends. He's on both sides of it, is what he's saying. 
He says, and you laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the handiwork of your hand. He put the stars in place. He put the planets in place. He caused the rotation. He caused the orderly system of the, of the universe. All of that was done by Jesus Christ. That's what this is saying. That's where he begins. Angels didn't do that. Somewhere in the course of all of that, angels were created. We're not given a specific time when they were created. We don't know. Uh, theologians have debated that argument forever. But they were created before man. Yeah, but somewhere in the creative order, they were created. And that's the point. He laid it all out. You know, incidentally, this says he's the one that orders the planets, not angels. You know, what's your job? Well, I'm the angel of Mars. You know, no, that's not true. That's just not true. It says here, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. So in the beginning, there was Jesus putting together the creation. And then he goes on to say, and they will perish, but you remain. There's the end. And on the other side of it, there's Jesus. He's eternal. He points, he points to the world coming to an end in verses 11 through 12a. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us that the, that the earth will burn up with intense heat. Um, the, work, the earth and all of its works will be burned up with intense heat. Uh, in Revelation chapter 6 through 20, we have the outpouring of that event uh, of of coming coming to that finality point uh, and then we have in chapter 21 the coming of a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus reigns forever and he and he describes them like a useless old garment ultimately is what he says he says it's like a useless old garment he says, they will wear out like an art garment, like a robe that you will roll up, like a garment they will be changed. In other words, what he's, he's, he's equating it, uh, this is, of course, figurative language, but he's, he's basically equating it to changing your clothes. Uh, you know, I, I guess today it's really popular. I, I've never understood this. I throw away jeans when they have holes in them. <laughs> you know? People today go pay extra to get wore out jeans. <laughs> but but uh, uh, so maybe this doesn't apply to today's generation. No, no, I'm not. I'm just that's just kidding around. But, you know, this is like an old suit of clothes, an old dress, an old coat. It's wore out. It's no longer functional. It no longer does what it's supposed to do because it's no longer any good. It's done. Basically, he's equating that to the earth coming to an end. It wears out, and Jesus redoes everything. But here, here he is saying, it's like, an, it's like an old garment. You just roll it up, and it's no longer of any use, and you get rid of it. That's what, he's, that's, what he, that's what he's saying here. He, he's, saying, he's saying, but when that happens to the earth, you're still the same. Jesus does unchangeable. 
It's one of the marks of divinity, is the fact that he is unchangeable. In fact, the uh, book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 8, is going to say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is absolutely dependable. He absolutely is unchangeable. Uh, there is no variation with him. Uh, there, is no, there is no changing his mind. Uh, there is no mistakes being made. It's all going to be accurately handled is the idea. And he says, your years have no end. You're eternal. That's the point he's making here. He says, you have no end. He says, he says you're, 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 but you are the same and your years will have no end. He is the eternal God. He was there in eternity. You know, we use these terms because we don't have any other terms to explain it. Can any of you explain eternity? I explain it. It's timelessness. You know, but even that's not accurate because it has a progression within it. Time is within it. It's part of the created order. But he says, he says, you were there before there was and you're there after there is. You're there. You're eternal. You covered all. All of history is held in his hand. He was there before it. And he will be there after it. That's, that's the picture that he's giving here. He's eternal. The angels, somewhere along the line, were created by him. But he's eternal. That's, that's what he's wanting them to understand. He is the, he is the creator. He existed before creation. He will exist after it. He will exist during it. He is the creator. And then the last section in verses 13 through four, uh, verses 13 and 14, he's going to say, he's better because of his position. He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Here's an interesting passage. Uh, there's uh, quite a couple of, couple of different things here. He says, first of all, did he ever say to an angel, come sit on the throne? Did he ever say that to an angel? Where, do the, where are the angels when we see them pictured in heaven? They're around the throne. They're standing before the throne or they're flat on their face. But they're not sitting. The king sits. You don't sit in the presence of the king. He's, he's saying, he's saying, no angel was ever offered to sit down at the right hand, which in the old, old world being set at the right hand was a position of power and authority, carried the same weight as the one I was sitting next to. That's, that's the whole idea here is that... Uh, this is who he is. No angel has ever, has ever had that place of honor. And then the next thing he says, he says, now, while you're seated there, we're going to take care of all your enemies. We're going to make them a footstool. This is another very, very picturesque statement he's making here. This talks about ancient warfare. Actually, it talks about modern warfare as well. But he talks about ancient warfare here because in ancient warfare, what happened is when you conquered a king before you killed him, 
You put him on the ground in front of you, and you put his foot on his neck. That's what that pictures. Joshua, chapter 10. I think it's chapter 10. I think it's... Okay, I can't find my reference. But I think it's Joshua chapter 10. Yeah, Joshua 10, 10 verse 24. After, after uh, Joshua has conquered all the kings of the Amorites, he lines them up. I think there were five of them. He lines them up on the ground, and he tells his army to swalk on them. Then he kills them. That's the picture here. That's what this is saying. I'm going to make your enemies a footstool, a place to rest your foot. In uh, the Gulf War... General Schwarzkopf, who was a commanding officer of uh, U.S. or the Allied troops, but basically U.S. troops. But at any rate, uh, they weren't allowed to complete that war. We don't complete wars anymore. Um, he wasn't allowed to complete that war. Uh, and, but when he brought it to an end, he was still going to have a sense of a surrender. And what he did was, he, he outlines this in his book, No Hero. He, he says this. He says, he took... He took and he placed a tent, you know, Arabs are real big on tents, and he put a tent down at the bottom of a ravine. And then he dragged all of the destroyed weaponry of the Iraqi army, not all of it, but a bunch of it, and lined the road coming to that tent. And then on the top of the ravine, on the cliffs, he put U.S. tanks with their tubes pointed down at the road. And then he brought the Iraqi generals in at the top of the hill and made them walk down to him at the base of the hill and sign the surrender. That's putting your enemies under your foot. That's, that's the picture. That's what he's saying here. Jesus, as in his position of authority as God, sits on a throne and his enemies has his foot on their neck. That's what he's saying here. No angel does that. Now, the angels may bring those enemies there and put them on us there, but nevertheless, they're not there. And then he goes on and he contrasts that position with the angels. He says, that's Jesus. Jesus sitting on the throne. All his enemies are under his foot. But the angels, the angels, on the other hand, they're ministering spirits. Their job is servants. Now, they're lofty, great creatures, but their primary function is service. And then not only that, God has directed that service to us, the heirs of salvation. That's who you are if you're saved. You're an heir of salvation. That's what he's saying. That's where he's directed it. He's directed it at us. Jesus is greater than angels. Now, if you're a Hebrew Christian and you just found out, angels' job is to take care of me? And serve Jesus? Yeah, I think Jesus is better. That's ultimately what this po- the whole point of this passage is. There's a bunch of controversial things in this passage we didn't go into today. Because they're not the point. The point of the passage is, Jesus stands above, far above all else, including angels, which were worshipped by some ancient Hebrews. And he, is, he stands above them because... Because he has a better name, because he is the one who is worshipped, because he is divine, because he is eternal, and because he is 
seated on the throne. He is God eternal. Any comments or questions this morning? Good, because I don't know if I have any more answers. But anyway, uh, <laughs> let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning as we've uh, looked into this text. We just, uh, we just thank you for the understanding that you give to us. Uh, we thank you that we understand uh, the position uh, that you are describing here. Uh, that you've taken the Old Testament and shown that Jesus is indeed God Almighty. He is God the Son. He is, he, is, he is the Savior, the God, the triumphant one. Uh, and we can put our entire trust in him uh, and know that our salvation is secure in his hands. And we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.